Good morning, First SF. Good morning, First SF. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we have been longtime fans, if you can be a fan of a church, we have been longtime fans of uh, First Baptist of San Francisco. Uh, my family and I, we moved here initially uh, back in 2012 for seminary. And, um, and when we visited here, we loved it. And Desiree, she continued to say, this is the standard for us. James, I want a church like uh, First Baptist of San Francisco. So that's a lot of pressure, Desiree. Don't put all that on me, okay? Um, no, but thank you so much. Um, and so we, I honor um, and I appreciate you, uh, Pastor Ryan. And thank you for this opportunity to share with you all. Um, so today, we're going to be going over the topic of a wealth of wisdom in a wisdom of wealth. There's a wealth of wisdom in a wisdom of wealth. We're going to be coming from Proverbs chapter 22, and I'm going to be reading several verses uh, regarding this predominant theme in the first 16 verses of the chapter. Let me begin to read our verse this morning. Proverbs 22, verse 1, is that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Let's pray. Father, what a humbling thought it is to know that on account of what Jesus did on the cross, that we can address you as Abba, Father, the creator of all things, a personal and living God. And Lord, we're so thankful that you hear us even this morning as we pray to you, as we get ready to go into your word, Lord, we ask right now that you would shape us by your word, shape us by your gospel, Lord, that by hearing your word, Lord, that we are renewed and we are convicted and, and we are even brought to life. Lord, what a wonderful thought it is that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not die and have everlasting life. Lord, may we bask in that word this morning, Jesus himself. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so as we are continuing, continuing uh, this series through the book of Proverbs, uh, we are faced, I think, with a very important question and a very important topic. Where does wealth fit in our lives? Wealth is something that affects all of us, and wealth is something that plays center stage in all of our lives to some degree. Wealth is a very, very important topic in our lives. Now, if you believe that I'm going to give you the 10 steps to how to become a millionaire, you are going to be thoroughly disappointed. I'm not going to tell you what, you're going, what to do with your Roth RIA or God calls you to be rich. I'm not going to do any of that. But we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about wealth, and it's very relevant for us today. And this morning, I'm not going to necessarily define wealth uh, to be something very particular in terms of dollar amount. The fact is, is that many of us, we have different uh, definitions of what wealth is. For instance, you are not going to be able to tempt me with a billion dollars. I don't care about a billion dollars. It's just too much. I don't have enough vision to match a billion dollars. 
Now, I think that my request is a little bit more holier than a billion dollars. Give me 1% of a billion dollars and I'm fine. <laughs> Just 1%. That's holy. That happens to be $10 million or whatever, but still, it's lower. We have different definitions of what it means to be wealthy. And on that, that spectrum, we are all driven from different degrees to accomplish what it means to be wealthy in our lives. Whether that is the family, the perfect family, whether that is the perfect school, whatever it is, it drives us and it has driven humanity since the beginning. This is just as true for the ancient world as it is for the modern world. An ancient world that most likely would have meant owning property, owning land, having a family, being able to bear children, and being able to produce offspring that will protect the posterity of the patriarch. For us today, we find this conversation happening in anxious longings as we think about what schools will our children attend, what neighborhood will we live in, what career will we land, will I ever be able to do the things that I really want to do. That's where we find this conversation happening the most and the quietness of our hearts. We are anxious. Lord, I just need what I need. Now, the questions are not always overt. They are asked and answered through our fears and our habits of spending resources to attain those desires of the heart. And so today we're going to primarily listen in and hone in on what the Bible has to say about it, because the Bible is certainly not against um, building wealth. However, this morning, our text offers us two basic principles that should serve as a foundation to build upon in any and every pursuit of wealth. And so our first being, who we are is worth more than what we have. Who we are is worth more than what we have. We see that in verse 1. The writer here says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. The writer here is writing something that is very controversial, certainly in his context, and certainly countercultural. In his context as well as in our context. You mean to tell me that, that there's something that is greater than riches. A good name is greater than riches. Favor is greater than riches. It's countercultural because it goes against everything that our culture would actually teach and would actually value. And listen, the writer isn't saying that there's something inherently wrong with having great riches. After all, a person that is responsible for writing most of the Proverbs was one of the richest people that, we had, that the world had ever known. Namely, King Solomon. He's not saying that there's something wrong with great riches. He's simply saying that there are things more important than what we, in any given society, tend to, to declare as most desirable and most important in life. The ancient human and the modern human are unified by common human struggle. We are unified by something fundamentally true in humanity since the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And that is this sense that we can live apart from the instructions of our Creator so we can attain what we truly want. And we live by this mantra. We may not say it, but we live and we're tempted to live by the mantra, if I only had, then I can truly be. A characteristic that's been true of America since the 19th century, since the famous um, uh, French 
explorer, the Tocqueville, explored America in the 19th century, the one thing that he said that was characteristic of America and, and how you actually describe America is, is, is by this one word called insatiability. Going and looking at Americans and that they want more and they want bigger and they want better. He says, this is the primary difference as I'm coming from a Western country. When I look at America, he says that Americas, they have this insatiable desire for more. And certainly that is just as true for us in the 21st century as it was in the 19th century. If we're honest, this morning many of us can't enjoy truly being during still moments of reflection. Being, actually just simply existing and enjoying what the Lord has given us until our doing, the things that we do, has arrived. Arrived at the destination that we say that this is when I will be content. This is when I will be satisfied. The place that gives me the greatest sense that I made it, I've arrived, I'm successful. And for many of us that may be the car, the truck, upgrade, the promotion, the neighborhood, proving something to the naysayers, or simply the accumulation of more stuff, whether used or new. The psalmist, excuse me, the proverb, proverbial writer here, he's offering, in a sense, this pause. Stop! Pause! Get off of that hamster wheel. There's no rest for it. It never ends. He says there's simply... Things that far outweigh a pursuit of wealth. There's things that far outweigh a pursuit of material gains. After all, when is enough enough? And then we'll find often in life that enough is never enough. So he said, let's take a pause here. And he says that, listen, a good name is greater than some treasure hunt or golden ticket or striking it big. A good name is greater. When you look at the true value of money, look at what it can actually accomplish, what it can actually purchase. Money can't buy us the most important things in life. The child in need of a distant parent doesn't care about how much the parent makes. Growing up in the inner city, I fell victim to what is often a problem or an issue in the inner city with absentee fathers. It is just as big of an epidemic in suburbs with parents that are present but are not present. When talking with my father regarding, hey, why weren't you around? It was often with this noble excuse that I was going to make money. I had to build from my family. I guarantee you it doesn't matter to anyone you ask this question to. It doesn't matter when you're afraid. It doesn't matter when you're trying to figure out how to change a tire. It doesn't matter when you try to figure out what it means to be in a relationship. God has created matter. We see something very unique in the way that God has created humanity. The most important things about life will not be found in the material, but in the immaterial. The spouse who literally feels lonely, trapped, and broken is never comforted by the words, I did this for us. The elite club, that's a, that's a mission by recommendation only. It doesn't care how much money you throw at the gatekeeper. See, money, it can buy us life insurance, but it can't prevent death. It can buy food for a date, but it can't buy love. Just in case you believe that it's going to buy you love. It's not. It can't make for an, it can make, excuse me, for an impressive portfolio. But you can't Take it with you. 
Jesus says it this way in Mark 8, chapter 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? says you can't take it with you. The things that culture typically values and pushes towards and say you need the, a new watch and you need better shoes and you need this new, new computer and this upgrade and that upgrade, which by the way, I will not upgrade my iPhone. I still got the seven. Don't judge me. Or you can judge me. I don't care. Culture is going to continue to value and to push that because we're driven by the very thing that we fall victim to more, more and more and more. You ever get the sense that I wasn't meant for that? Something is wrong with the culture in which we breathe in every day and often, like fish in water, we don't even realize our own wetness. Something that's always, the commercial is always creating this discontent posture in life. Something also that may not be seen here easily, 2,000 years, or excuse me, about 3,000 years separated, is this is from an honor and shame culture, which is still very relevant in Asiatic cultures across the world. An honor and shame culture is not what you make. It's not your riches that is most important. It is a good name, a good reputation, how you are thought of in the community, which is why it far outweighs money, the money that you had, because the question is, how did you get the money? How are you attaining the wealth? Who is possibly being stepped over will be critical questions that people who do not care about a good name typically ignore. And God has created us in such a way. This is the beauty of the way that God has created us. Created us excuse me. He's created us in such a way that at the center of who we are and how God created us is we are relational beings. That means that God has actually created us for relationship for relationship with God and for a relationship with people. It's no wonder that we find that in the teachings of, of Jesus when, he, when he's asked, Lord, what is the greatest of the commandments? He summarizes the commandments in two. Love your God with a bold love, an extravagant love, everything within you. Love your God with all your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Essentially, this is what the, the, the uh, author here, the proverbial writer, is getting at, is that, listen, there are things that are worth more than that, and those things are centered around relationship. How do you treat people in relationship? What do people think about you? What does your neighbor think of you? See, the God of the Bible is most concerned with the unseen person, not so much the seen person. He's, he's, he's interested in the person that, went, that was dressed up for bed last night with, with messy hair, breath maybe not be smelling the best, maybe the way we looked right before we got dressed for Sunday morning today. He's more, most interested in the unseen person. What who we are, our character, is more important than what we have. Secondly, we see this this principle that we should build on is in what we have doesn't make us more or less important than others. What we have doesn't make us more or less important than others. This right here, I believe, is a very difficult one. It's very difficult in our culture. It's very difficult for us in our hearts when we see someone that may not be on the same level as us, 
When we see someone who we think is above us socioeconomically, then maybe we feel unworthy. When we see someone that's below us socioeconomically, maybe we feel that they're unworthy. And we get this, that, we have, that what we have doesn't make us more or less important than, than others. In verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. The rich and the poor, they meet together, and the Lord is maker of them all. What a remarkable text. The text was just as socially audacious and absurd in the ancient world as it is in this world. He's making a claim to those who may be reading you or different that, listen, I know that you may believe, you may not say it, but maybe you believe that you are different, that there's something is different about you, that something in the blood is different within you when you are in a different socioeconomic status. It's a warning to the, to the rich in this text right here. And just as in the case, as in modern society in ancient Israel, the rich and the poor were separated socially and physically. They were separated. There was a sharp cleft between the rich and the poor. And I think that we can say that there is a sharp cleft, certainly, between the rich and the poor, and then, to some degrees, everything in between in America. The primary six socioeconomic categories in America are the upper class, the new, uh, new money, middle class, working class, working poor, poverty level. Those are the six different classes and uh, stratas that we have that we operate in. And in each category, we can sometimes find uh, people uh, that would shoot up in uh, the air a flare that would identify who they are. And we do this in different ways. I do this in different ways. By the car that I drive and by the house that I go to and, and where I'm going to take my kids. Those are different ways that I, bow, shoot up in the air. You see the flare. This is who I am. This is the group that I belong to. There's different ways that we can do that, and sometimes we even have ways of shooting the flare for other people. You belong there. You don't belong here. In this fragmented culture that we have, not all people are created equally. We live in a world where judiciary processes and verdicts are too often determined and influenced by power and accessibility to powerful networks. Where ethics are determined by what self-interest group has the most resources and has the most money. This is even true around the world where people are born into permanent caste systems of gross poverty. This is something that is anti-gospel in terms of how we live out the Imago Dei. Outside of believing in one, a one God, a mono God, a one God that exists, and believing that that God is actually personal and he wants to get to know us and he wants to reveal himself to us through his son, that we can actually know this God. Outside of that belief, the most radical belief that the Judeo-Christian has is that we were all created in the image of God. That is the most radical view that we have, that wherever you are born or whoever you are, you are just as important to God and you are equal no matter what you make at the end of the year, no matter what your skin color is. You are made and valued by God. And the only way to practically live into this reality where the rich and the poor meet together in a belief that the Lord is maker of them all, the only way to actually practically and realistically do that is through a godly intentionality that breaks cultural and socioeconomic barriers. 
in the new community that the Lord has died for, that the Lord shed his blood for, where it's an upside-down kingdom, where it's countercultural, and it looks like nothing else in the world, where we value those that are not supposed to be valued, and we get along with people that we're not supposed to get, be, get along with in this new community of God. The community where a living God invites all of humanity into life as it was intended through the person Jesus Christ. The rich and poor, black, red, brown, and white, the town and the city. Yes, we can also get along. LeBron fans and everybody else. That's the one thing I had to change. I had to, I'm a, yes, I'm, I'm now a Warriors fan. And everybody else can all vibrantly and harmoniously and beautifully with great struggle and breakups and makeups live together in God's family. That's the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 7 where people from all over are coming together and they are worshiping their king. It's the picture that we see when Jesus invites, uh, sends his invitation out for the great supper that he says, go to the poor, not just to the wealthy. Go even further. When they came back, said, okay, we got all the poor. He says, go even further, even to those on the outskirts that don't ordinarily belong in our culture. Go. All are invited here. The church is called to reflect that in this assembly, which is one of our greatest enjoyments. When the thing that Desiree continues to bring up to me over and over again about what she remembers about First Baptist of San Francisco, she will always say, James, they're just so accepting. She saw all different types of grades, people that are poor, rich, middle class, whatever, it doesn't matter, but they're here together in this city. And we pray that when we launch this church on September 15th, that we're able to display such a gospel-centered principle. The latter has to be believed in this text, that God is maker of them all. The latter has to be believed that the former is going to be lived, that we're going to be together. In other words, when we see people in the quietness of our thoughts, we must believe that there is nothing that inherently separates us. However, the only way to really believe the latter is to actively live out the former. St. Francis, the very person whom this city is named after, of Assisi of the 13th century, he stated this, how do you do this? How do you live with people cross socioeconomic lines? How do you live with people despite what you make and what they make? How do you Prevent yourself from reducing people to questions such as, what do you do for a living? He says, you start by what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. Let's read that text again. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. If we're going to do this, you and I, continue to do this. We must be committed to what many of you are already committed to, and we must be committed to, to living in community the way in which Jesus has called us to, this common life together. This common life together. We have wonderful and a plethora of examples offered in scriptures. It's the middle class Barnabas sharing his wealth with his church for people that are in need. It's the upper class, Lydia, opening up her house for a church that the gospel may flourish in Philippi. It's the lower class disciples alike sharing the good news of Jesus across the entire Roman Empire that royal figures and prisoners alike and everybody in between may come to know a loving Savior. It's a gentleman by the name of Eric Burquest taking 
me to have Bible study with the homeless during one of my first vision trips to the Bay. So you want to be a pastor? Well, let's go into the least of these and preach the gospel. It's Jesus being rich in power and glory, coming to live and serve those who are physically and spiritually poor. And that is all of us. That is the posture that God wants from all of us, is that to a broken spirit and to a contrite heart, to this I will draw nigh, is brokenness and this poverty of spirit that Jesus is drawn to because it is not for the healthy, it is not for those who believe that they have it all together that needs Jesus. It's the sick that needs Jesus. Those who are spiritually impoverished in great need of relationship with their God because life doesn't make sense apart from the creator who designed it. Jesus sets this example of what it means to be in common life together in a very beautiful way by being divinely rich and coming down not only to dwell with the poor, but to be poor. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. With God was God. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a beautiful example that the Lord lays before us of what it means to lay preferences and pursuits and materialism and lay all those things at the cross and then pursue things there are of a higher worthy cause, relationship with him, relationship with others. Let me close this morning by looking at some fears, some warnings, and some encouragements coming from the rest of this text. I think if we're honest this morning as we think about wealth and as we think about being well off and being taken care of, we, we struggle with this, and we struggle with this as it pertains to the past, present, and the future in some way, form, or fashion. Maybe if it's in the past, will I do better than my past? Will I do better than my parents? Will I survive my week-to-week in my present? Maybe I'm living from check to check, like most Americans are. Maybe it's, will I and are my family be secure for the future? Am I putting enough in my Roth IRA? Am I investing enough? Am I setting myself up for the best opportunities? And for some of us, perhaps we are feeling in prison today as I am in talk right now, feeling like I've associated my spending to my identity for so long that I don't know how to get disentangled. What does that often look like? That my identity is tied in what I have and how I look. So I spend to make sure that I keep up with the Joneses. I spend to make sure that I'm looking the look, that I'm playing the part. And soul care, we call that the false self, operating in a self for people to see. God is looking behind the mask, and he's very interested in the person behind the mask. The writer gives a warning and some encouragement here. The writer of Proverbs understand this real and present fear and impulse in humanity. And so he warns us in verse 7. This is not uh, some, some struggle that comes from the outside. It comes from the inside. We're born with this sin. It was, it was, it was uh, David that said that I was shaped in iniquity. We're born. It's a part of our DNA. Just these things, if you didn't know. 
No one has to teach us these things, to struggle with in these ways. Don't be, in verse 7, he says, don't be driven by greed to take out debt. Do everything you can to avoid debt and pay off debt as quickly as possible, because sometimes with this, this thing that's so mysteriously tied up in our identity, we'll do anything to have and to do. And maybe it doesn't seem as dangerous to us unless it gets to the point of having to file for bankruptcy. But it becomes serious when those debt collectors begin to make a call to you, doesn't it? Oh, okay, nobody knows anything about that. It's it's just me. Don't worry about it. It says because we become enslaved to our impulses and to our fears, and it makes us enslaved to the person or to the establishment that we borrow from. This is why he says that the borrower is slave to the lender. Fear from greed causes fear in greed causes us to relinquish our power and give it away. The proverb writer here says that that's not wise. Don't do it. Get out of it as quickly as you can. It calls you to oppress those. Number two, he says, don't let the love of money and status causes you, cause you to oppress those that are poor because in such a pursuit to riches, poverty is your inevitable end. This person can be in poverty materially or certainly immaterially. And this is him speaking to, listen, the, the, the poor, the rich often, sometimes and often in other, um, uh, and certainly in, in certain instances, more than, uh, than not in others, oppress the poor. This is something that's 35, 33, I mean 3,000 years, 3,500 years ago. This is, has nothing to do with left, right, middle, where you lean at politically. It has nothing to do with that. It's something that has existed in humanity forever. And he says that do not oppress the poor. In doing so, your end is poverty. And at the end, when we meet our maker, when we meet God, his question to us will not be, how much did you build? How many toys do you have? It will not come down to that. How did you respond to relationship with me, and how did you treat other people in relationship after the first question is answered? Lastly, he gives us encouragement. He says, there is great joy when we use our wealth in a godly way. In verse 9 and verse 4, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. Those that are wealthy and those that have more than the other. In many ways, like, like I said, it is different for everybody. And the fact is, I am wealthy and more wealthier than someone else. He says, you will be blessed. And there's great joy for you when you share with others. For it is better to give than to receive. Verse 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. That's the promise that God gives us is that, listen, when, when we actually um, are in a humble state before the Lord, not boastful and prideful as riches often make us. And as I preach this, I preach to myself because it is countercultural to the heart and it's countercultural to the culture. God says that our things are simply more important and that is relationship and divine favor. I love St. Francis and his statement regarding those things that are most important. 
I leave you with this quote. He says here that men lose all the material things they have, excuse me, men lose all the material things they leave behind them in this world. But they carry with them the reward of their charity, the alms they give. For these they will receive from the Lord the reward and recompense they deserve. God is saying that, listen, there are certain things that you can't take with you. Focus on those things that are internal and not simply temporal. But the beauty of being inside of this kingdom of God and being within the Christian house and being within Christian family, the thing is, is that what you actually do and what you sow and who you give to and how you bless others and how you live your life and blessing others, you actually do get to take that with you. It's a treasure that is prepared for you in heaven. It's a, a treasure that is prepared for you as you make kingdom investments in the lives of other people. Now, that's a deal that I would love to go with. Let's pray. Lord, um, as we are often tempted when we see commercials, when we pull up on the side of another person, when we get dressed in the morning, when we're looking at Amazon, Lord, we're often tempted to place more emphasis on those things that make us desire to be the part, to be accepted by the community that we desire to be a part of. Lord, will you convict the hearts of your people today? Would you convict our hearts, Lord, and teach us, Lord, that it is greater, of greater significance, of eternal significance to care more about our relationship with you and care more about our relationships to those around us than buying the new order of this or that. And Lord, maybe this morning as we think about the next thing that we want to purchase in the new pair of glasses or whatever the case is, that we won't feel guilt for that, Lord, but, but maybe it will provoke us to ask the question, am I loving my neighbor? Have I spoken to someone different than me? Have I supped and did life together with other people? How can I bridge the gaps that the gospel and, and break barriers that the gospel tears down? But Lord, if any of us are dealing with fear and worry about their treasures today, I pray that they know that by trusting in you and by being humble before you and, and taking those concerns before you, that they will know and they will come to know in a very real and tangible way that true reward for that, for humility before you and transparency before you are riches, that you will take care of them, that we may be content in all areas. And Lord, finally, we pray for those, Lord, that may not know you and may find it difficult to trust in this Christian God, Lord. We pray for them as well that somehow, some way, right now, God, that you will continue to work on their hearts and draw them to you, letting them know that, that you want them. Cast your cares upon me. Take my burden on you because it is lighter than the burden in which we carry. Oh, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.